0: Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, ready to report. Earnings season kicking off in a big way tomorrow. The bank's on deck. How Our traders are positioned heading into those prints. Plus, just buy it. The big call on Nike giving that stock a boost today. Find out if you should bet on this name. And later, shaking things up. The lowdown on a high-end burger from Shake Shack that could bring some mouthwatering returns. We start off with a big after-hours alert on Apple. The stock is lower on reports the company is slashing iPhone production. We go straight to Josh Lipton with the details. Josh.
1: So, Melissa, Apple just unveiled those new iPhones last month, but Bloomberg is now reporting some news on those models that the company is likely to cut its projected iPhone 13 production targets for 2021 by as many as 10 million units, the reason prolonged chip shortages. The company had apparently expected to produce 90 million new iPhone models in the last three months of the year, but now, according to Bloomberg, Apple is saying suppliers like Broadcom and Texas Instruments are having a tough time delivering enough components. I did catch up with Gene Munster of Loop Ventures for his quick take. Not a big surprise here, in his opinion. After all, Apple did flag the chip crunch as a potential challenge. Remember, when Apple last reported earnings in late July, CFO Luca Maestri emphasized that supply constraints during the current quarter would be greater than the prior quarter. And those constraints, he said, would impact iPhone and iPad. By the way, $10 million by Gene's math, it's probably about a 5 to at most 10% impact to iPhone revenue over six months. Though Gene argues this news ultimately delays demand, not destroys it. Apple declined comment. Back to you all.
0: All right, Josh, thanks. Josh Lipton. Again, delay or destroy? That's the big question here, Guy. And at the same time, this sort of confirms what everybody's fears were about the supply chain crunch. <coughs> and that is, it's not as transitory as we might all think. It might not be resolved as quickly as we thought.
2: Yeah, that's clear the bigger story. But the Apple story specific, listen, we've seen headlines like this, I would say, over the last three or four years, and we've seen the stock you know, Dan has made this point a number of times. Starting go back September of two thousand and eighteen. We saw it in January twenty, we saw it earlier this year, where you've seen a peak to trough decline anywhere from fifteen to thirty percent. And we're in the midst of one now. So the question is where do you buy the stock? And I think that comes in the form of one hundred thirty five. That'll be a fifteen percent peak to trough decline off the recent all time high. Again, we have seen negative headlines from Apple. They always seem to figure it out. Um, probably is a more, to your point, is it more delayed or, or to your point, um, not purchased? It's more delayed without question. Apple will recover from this. I think the re- bigger case is supply chains and some of these suppliers that we'll talk about as well.
0: Yeah. Tim, your take on this?
3: Look, we've seen these headlines. Uh, we got this guide from Apple. This isn't a huge surprise. Uh, back in March, they, they cut production. They, you know, they are basically it was more of a demand issue around the 12 mini. But again, a 20 percent pullback uh, in production then. Uh, stock didn't do anything. So uh, look, I, I think this is well flagged. I, I think Apple, uh, Guy pointed out some of the levels on the stock, if, if you if you break the 200 here, and it's, it's kind of hanging right there at the door. Apple hasn't traded below the 200 days since COVID, and I'm gonna give them a pass on that. So you have to go back almost five years on Apple to see this stock trade below a long-term average, which is what he said and what we've all said. This stock has, has you know, basically supported investors that have signed up as investors, not traders in Apple. Um, I think if you look at the semis overall, again, um, I, I think the, the, the character of that chart is changed. And I think we have to be very careful here because I think if you look at the SMH, the semiconductors ETF, it also is on the verge of going a place it really hasn't been since well before the crisis. But who does this affect or who are the implications on? Uh, let's, let's watch Texan. Let's watch Broadcom. Let's watch Skyworks. Um, I think these are all component suppliers that obviously very important to Apple, who at this point proves even they are not too big to run into supply shortages.
0: Right, and, and if the Bloomberg article specific, specifically says that Apple has told manufacturers that it's because of component shortages at Texan, as well as uh, Broadcom, it's gonna say Vago, Broadcom um, for the shortfall in production for, for 2021. Karen, but at the same time, if we are to believe that it's not demand destroyed and it's demand delayed, then shouldn't that reasoning also be applied to the semiconductor names? And so therefore the, the sellout that we've seen in some of these semiconductor semiconductor names, semiconductors which have not done well for the past month. Uh, shouldn't we just sort of look through that as well? If we're going to look through it at Apple, why not look through it, uh, you know, for their suppliers?
4: That makes sense. I can't argue with that logic. I would argue, though, that they are trading at higher multiples, which maybe that would be a reason. Maybe it's. Uh, but I agree with you. That makes sense. I think, though, for Apple, it is demand delayed. But I think also that that's sort of been out there. I think the wait times for the pro 13, 13 pro max, both pro and are, are long and four weeks maybe plus. I think the Credit Suisse might have put it out something about that the other day. So that would make sense that you can't get them because of chip shortages. So I don't know if this is sort of weakness trading on the same news again, um, or, if, you know, if you look at the fang complex, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a great day. So I don't know if that's part of it. To me, the Apple story remains intact, perhaps delayed, but very much intact. So mm-hmm. I'm hanging on to this. And uh, to Tim's point also, if they can't get chips, you would think they would have some muscle. Um, doesn't bode well for some others. And that's
0: where I was going to go, Dan. I mean, is that the bigger headline for this story? It's maybe not a a huge concern for Apple investors. But what we have seen is that even the biggest companies with the best supply chains, the best manufacturing um, arrangements around the world in this country, they are not immune from supply chain issues. We saw it with Nike, certainly, which we'll talk about a little bit more later in the show. And we're seeing with Apple, if they can't get this right, who can?
5: Yeah, I think you have to focus on the products, though, Mel, because, you know, we've talked about some of these trends that have been going on for 18 months, work from home, school from home, that sort of thing. We know there was a lot of pull forward. We know a lot of people bought a lot of expensive equipment. And they had a lot of money to do so to help them operate a little bit. I'm not so sure that these Apple products that were just announced, these were probably the most iterative phones that they have introduced in a very long time. We know they're going to do a MacBook event next week. Again, I'm being told it's a better camera and a better process. The lead times on all of their products are really extended right now. I've been buying them, and it's hard to do. I've been trying to buy them for my uh, my business. So, uh, you know, that's just a fact here. And then when you think about Apple, the stock is down about 10%. Guy talked about the history over the last five years. There's been three peak to trough declines of 30%. So to think down 10% in the face of all of this uncertainty about supply, but also demand going forward... It's a little quizzical to me. The stock trades 25 times next year's earnings. They're going to guide for the full year, maybe or maybe not, when they report in a couple of weeks. Expected EPS growth. Of nothing zero flat ish okay on gap EPS and sales are expected to grow low single digits so you guys tell me given all the uncertainty that we have right now and the uncertainty about demand going forward not just supply chain issues paying 25 times for the stock that might be in the midst of one of those 25 30 percent peak to drop declines I think you probably have some time here
0: yeah Tim you look like you went want to disagree
3: well, Dan's made some great points here uh, about valuations, and even Apple, which was always kind of the safety in the higher, you know, certainly mega cap tech. I, I think you've smoothed out some of the volatility though around Apple and as an earnings story and a, on a multiple basis because of the services income. Uh, it's not so much dependent on an iPhone, you know, refresh cycle or 5G rollout. Or um, I, and I think yes, we we priced in a lot of services and services also as Apple Care and some other things aren't going to be uh, the impact impact that they were on the services growth. So I, I, you know, I just think that at least Apple from a, its former volatility profile um, so hinged to the iPhone, which is where you found most of those peak to trough 30 percenters, I think it's a different company. And, and, and I think this is weakness to buy here. I don't think you need to wait for 15 percent more.
0: You know, Guy, before this uh, Apple headline crossed, we were going to lead with chips because you guys did so astutely flag on our 1230 call the big move in Micron that we had been tracking, which led us to look at the big move in semiconductors in general that they've had in the past month, down about 7 percent on the SMH. And, and so I'm wondering, Guy, if, if you think this is part of a fabric of a bigger story about the economy. We often talk about semiconductors being a leading uh, indicator for the economy. They're very, very cyclical. And so what does this downturn tell you, particularly in the context of supply chain issues?
2: That's the question, and as you mentioned, that's what we're going to leave the show with. Tim points out all the time correctly that semiconductors are basically this generation's oil, and and he's right to say that. So if these have been rolling over, and in, in a lot of cases these stocks topped out in early spring, one has to wonder what it really means. Now I understand there are obviously some supply chains things at work, but you know, if this is demand uh, situation and if the world is in fact slowing down on the one side and we're seeing it manifested in some of these chip names and on the flip side we're seeing commodities skyrocketing some of the price movements higher, that's a concerning situation I think, and that's something that you know Dan Nathan has brought up and now you're hearing more and more of that chorus of stagflation and I think those two things specifically illustrate that point exactly.
0: All right. For more on what this all means for the chip makers, let's bring in Jared Weisfeld, tech sector specialist at Jefferies. He's on the fast line. Jared, good to hear from you.
6: Good to hear from you. Thanks for having me on again.
0: What do you think is behind the the decline, the rollover that we've seen in semiconductors broadly?
6: So taking a step back from a broader cycle standpoint, I think the bigger issue has been concern, certainly from a supply chain perspective that everyone on the show has just highlighted here over the last few minutes. But I think there's this broader concern on what end demand really is from an underlying consumption standpoint. There's this bottleneck in the supply chain that continues to build up. Lead times are lengthening. And if you think about lead times in terms of the time it takes to receive certain semiconductor products. In some cases, it's it's 70 to 80 weeks. So, you know, clearly, you know, a year and a half to get products, and that's not sustainable. So I think there's this fear that, you know, as as production comes online, you're going to have this mismatch from the supply-demands perspective, and that's certainly been weighing uh, weighing on the complex when you think about the multiple drivers uh, of semiconductors. But uh, but for sure, you, this Apple, you know, I, I think everyone hit it on the head over the last few minutes here. This this Apple news, I think, was, was very well-telling and we can certainly get into more of the details here. But mm-hmm. I think this should not be a surprise to many, and uh, I don't think it's necessarily a view of demand destruction.
0: Seventy to eighty week lead times for some component. I mean, that is a staggering stat, Jared. And I'm wondering what what sorts of components those are and who makes them. Um, I'm just trying to figure out where in the you know where amongst the chip makers. Who is the most vulnerable to demand destruction? In other words, when they finally get the components out, they're just going to be mismatched on the economic cycle.
6: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, similar to what we saw tonight in terms of Apple potentially cutting their bills by about 10 million, given, uh, given their inability to procure trips from Broadcom and Texas Instruments, yesterday we had another negative pre-announcement in the space in terms of Aptiv, which is in the automotive supply chain, negatively pre-announcing specifically for that reason as well. And that's where all the tightness that we're picking up is. When you sort of look at the broader semiconductor supply chain, the critical components that are going into the automobiles, you know, you've seen it now um, in terms of just uh, all of the newsletters coming from the automobile lobby and and all uh, all of the shortages and constraints that are in the system, compounded by multiple natural disasters that we've had in Texas with the freeze. We've had a fire at Renaissance in Japan, it's sort of been a perfect storm. Uh, no pun intended, in terms of just on the automotive side. And that's really where we're seeing the the longest uh, lead times in terms of the supply chain.
5: Hey, Jared, it's Dan. Thanks for joining us, bud. So this week, we're going to get some earnings out of Taiwan Semiconductor, and I just want to kind of get your take. The stock is down about 25% from its all-time highs made earlier this year. It's bounced off of 109 a couple times. That's where it is right now. If you look at the out number, can we believe the out-year numbers because consensus has it growing, I don't know, earnings at least 20% and sales at least 20% year-over-year, trading about 23 times. That seems kind of reasonable. Are you waiting for the print Before you want to buy this thing and and where does this fit into your buy list of semi names that have been beaten up of late?
6: Taiwan Semi is is really interesting because it's, you know, the largest foundry on the planet and it's viewed as the gold standard in terms of just such a diverse end market demand and sort of best of breed across the board. And I think there's there's so much nervousness in terms of where we are in the cycle, in terms of what we've just been talking about. Um, so can this print actually be a clearing event for the stock? Um, you know, it, it's certainly pretty interesting because there have been well uh, telegraphed price increases that have been going through the system, which would allow TSMC to potentially overpower any kind of near-term weakness. And I think the bigger question to ask on TSMC, you look at their customer base. It includes AMD, NVIDIA, Qualcomm, which just announced a $10 billion share repurchase authorization a few minutes ago. You know, if if you look at what the unconstrained demand environment looks like for a lot of these leading-edge players that are levered to uh, hyperscale and compute over the next few years, TSMC is the best way to play it from that standpoint. So you can make the case that players like NVIDIA and AMD could actually benefit if you have any kind of loosening up of supply uh, that occurs. And the, the key item to watch down on TSMC is is their CapEx forecast. They're going to spend about 30 to $31 billion this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, folks are definitely expecting a pretty significant increase into 2022, perhaps as much as 20 to 30 percent. So you could have some relief on the way to the extent that you have a, uh, a larger than expected uh, budget for semiconductor capital equipment into next year.
0: I know the producers are going to be screaming at me, Jared, but I do want to ask one more question about about the mm-hmm. automotive supply chain, because I'm wondering, you know, how is it that Tesla is able to get all the chips that they need? And granted, Tesla is a much smaller manufacturer than a GM or a Ford. Um, but I, is, is it a difference in the kinds of chips? Is it the priorities of the chip makers themselves in terms of customers? I'm, I'm wondering if you have a sense of that.
6: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head here in terms of just number of units. You sort of look at a Tesla versus a GM or a Ford and, you know, while it's certainly the quickest category of automobiles in terms of EV and what that means, uh, not only from a unit standpoint, but also a ton of silicon content that's going into it. It's just, you're you're dealing with, um, you're dealing with just such a smaller base relative to uh, the larger OEM. So I I think, I think that's exactly, uh, that's exactly the point. But, you know, certainly if you go through Tesla's filings and risk factors, you know, they certainly highlight um, the semiconductor shortage as a potential risk uh, for their business longer term as
0: well. Yep. Jared, great to speak with you. Thank you so much.
6: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Jared, Jared Weisfeld of Jefferies. Guy Dami, how do you trade this? It's
2: interesting you mentioned Qualcomm because I saw that headline as well. $10 billion buyback is not insignificant. I mean, I think it's about $130 billion market cap company one. And if you look at where Qualcomm recently traded down to, this 122.5, 123 level, that's where we bottomed out in March. So I think Qualcomm is interesting, but I think he makes a great point about AMD. They probably do stand to win. I've always been shocked how Texan gets this premium valuation, trading close to 25 times next year's numbers. They don't really have the commensurate growth. I think Texan's the one you have to watch out for here on the downside.
0: Karen, did you get a little bit worried about GM <clears throat> when you heard Jared talk about the long, 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 more-than-year lead times?
4: A little bit. Uh, I mean, I'm always a little bit worried about GM, honestly, but despite them being able to put up really good numbers, I'm concerned broadly. I mean, this is a long time for for everything, right? And at some point, um, I, I do think even for long lead items, at some point you do have demand destruction. Um, because they have to do some other alternative, even if it isn't a com- competitive car or something like that. It might just be an alternative way of transportation to say, all right, we're just, uh, you know, buy used or something. So I'm concerned about this more broadly as it works its way through the economy.
0: All right. Well, Jim Cramer is uh, all over the action in the semi-space. He's watching for a buying opportunity following today's weakness, plus lays out his top four picks. You can read all about it in the CNBC Investing Club newsletter. Sign up now at cnbc.com backslash investing club or just point your phone at the QR code. You know the drill. Take it right there. All right, coming up. We're focusing on the financials as the big banks gear up to report results. How you should trade the group heading into earnings. But first, shares in Nike racing higher. A bullish call from Goldman giving that stock a boost. How our traders are playing this one. Do not go anywhere. We are live from the NASDAQ market side in Times Square. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Nike running higher after Goldman Sachs initiated the stock with a buy rating, a price target of $172. That's 12% higher than today's close. Analysts saying the recent supply chain concerns that have put pressure on the stock are likely transitory and already priced in. Nike is down 12% from its all-time highs. Tim, you probably like this call. Yeah.
3: Well, look, you know, 12% upside doesn't give you a lot of room for cartwheels either. The the two first arguments were uh, DTC equals higher margins. We knew that. Uh, Innovation, we knew that. Um, They talk a little bit about the balance sheet and, and that there could be more cash give back to investors. That's encouraging. You don't hear that a lot around Nike. Uh, The fourth argument is the interesting one, is they're saying valuation. They're saying this company is compelling on valuation now, um, 41 times 2022 EPS. um, Is that compelling? Amazing how Nike has moved itself, uh, you know, really almost 10 turns on its multiple in in the last three years. And and people are comfortable with it. So, um, look, I I am long, held 145, key part on the chart. I stay long.
0: Yeah. Karen?
4: Um, I don't know. I guess it's not a big enough margin for me to think, okay, 12% upside uh, for a name that's been volatile. The thing, not so much about the concern about supply chain. They have told us that. They've been upfront about that. It's really more the idea of some demand destruction in China for Chinese consumers. Um, And that sort of, you know, we saw it in some of the, like, I think it was Yum China. And whether the consumers are starting to feel very pressured there, as, you know, Chinese markets have bounced back some, but it's been a rough go there. So that sort of, I mean, already that with the multiple, which is high, I know there are other ones higher they point out, um, but it makes me pass. We're not going to see earnings, I think, not till December. So uh, I'm going to wait.
0: Yeah, I think the point about China is really interesting, Karen, that um, I, I don't know if a lot of people are thinking about the Chinese consumer, the health of the Chinese consumer, and all the other sort of pressures that they're facing in terms of higher costs. I mean, over a, they're a huge country, obviously. I'm not saying anything new there, um, but but temperatures are getting low in parts of the country, and they're paying, you know, out of their ears for heating costs at this point. I mean, all of the energy spikes that we talked about here, they're happening there, too, with rolling blackouts, Guy. We're not thinking about that in terms of the impact on the Chinese consumer, the Chinese economy, and and then, therefore, the impact on U.S. companies.
2: Without question, but I think, for Nike, at least for me, I still think it's a North American story, and this DTC is important. And, oh, by the way, you know, the valuation that we're somewhat concerned about is probably backed up and justified by almost 32% earnings growth that they have. So I hear you on the Chinese consumer front, and that's probably a concern. And, oh, by the way, in terms of the broader market, that should be a concern as well. But I don't necessarily – listen, let's put it this way. Maybe it manifested itself in the sell-off we've seen from the 175 level. I think the average price target on the street is about $1. 85. I actually think the stock can get up there into earnings in December.
0: Dan, you're looking at Lulu quick.
5: Yeah, you know, this is one that does not have any China exposure. I mean, they may have supply chain exposure, but they don't have sales exposure here, primarily here in the U.S., and so they're not having issues with a stronger dollar. That's another thing for U.S. multinationals I think they're going to be contending with as we go into Q4 here. You know, they had this great quarter, stock gap to a new all-time high last month. It's filled in that entire gap, and I wonder if this is just the U.S. consumer investor here looking at discretionary spending, saying some of the trends might have changed. We've seen weakening consumer data over the last few months here or so so keep an eye on this lulu it's only up 10 percent in the year underperforming the s&p 500 right now
0: all right we're just getting started here on fast money here's what's coming up next
6: big banks on deck financial stocks gearing up to deliver earnings so where should you deposit your money plus the nft craze continues coinbase getting in on the action the big money details ahead don't go anywhere fast money is back right after this
0: Welcome back to Fast Money. We're just hours away from earnings season kicking off. J.P. Morgan getting things started tomorrow before the Bell, Bank of America, City. The rest report in the coming days. The setup into earnings has been strong. Even with today's slight pullback, the KBW Bank ETF is up more than 8% for over the last month compared to a 2% decline for the S&P. So how are you playing the banks? Funny how uh, we said it was strong. It's actually a tough setup, Karen. <laughs> and That's why you're a little bit worried, the run-up yes. going into earnings.
4: Well, right. But it was tougher last week because they all a lot of them peaked out last week. And, you know, J.P. Morgan, I think, is in maybe five or six bucks maybe now. So um, I like the setup. I think that we're going to see some very good numbers. I think everyone's talking about loan growth as important. It absolutely is important because that's the kind of earnings that gets a multiple. When you have giant SPAC market or, you know, big trading, everyone looks at that as lumpy. And so they're not going to give it a real multiple. So it's not worth as much. But I think loan growth And the one thing I've been thinking about the last few days, as all these supply chain issues happen, companies are, they just have to spend more money to run their business, to hold their inventory before they they can't get it landed soon enough and sell it and get that cash back. So they have to have revolvers. They have to be taking out more loans. It's called working capital. So everyone's working capital is going up. That's good for the banks to the extent they're lenders there. So I think credit quality is also going to be great. The one thing I do really want to hear about is buy now, pay later, and what they're doing, how that's affecting their credit card portfolio. That's going to be of interest to me. But uh, I think we're going to see some really good numbers. Yeah. Guy?
2: Well, it's not going to manifest itself in this quarter, but the yield curve sort of flattening out a bit. It's something to be concerned about, I guess, going forward. I mean, J.P. Morgan, this 170 level, which we peaked at a couple months ago, traded up to, seemingly <laughs> failed now. You know, I don't know really how it sets up. We've seen over the last few quarters, probably longer, these banks tend to sell off post-earnings only to find their footing a week or so later. My sense that's going to happen again. Pete Power pitched U.S. Bank Corp. a few weeks ago, I think in the mid-50s. That stock, I don't know if it was an all-time high today or yesterday, but close to it. That continues to be a bank that sort of flies on everybody's radar screen.
0: Minnesota-based, of course. Tim, what specifically will you be looking for at earnings season for banks?
3: Yeah. So I I think you're going to have weaker loan. I think you're going to have at least net interest margins that are still uh, not that sexy for the quarter, offset by strong markets-related activity. And and I think there's just a sense here that a lot of these banks are positioned for uh, a better consumer, uh, probably unnaturally low uh, credit concerns, too. I think that's both good and bad. Uh, I think you're going to see a few more credit reserve releases. That's good for the banks, but no one ever believes that. Uh, and on some level, people feel like we could be at kind of peak credit uh, tolerance and, and maybe things get a little bit worse. The consumer is certainly in good shape. Uh, guys, dead on. Look, banks sell off on earnings. They, they, they've done this for the last six quarters. They do it you know more times than not. They come into this. Look, Bank of America has looked like SoFi. It, it's up 45 percent. It's a fintech play. No, it's not. But Money Center banks at 1.7 times. And I'm long Bank of America. I'm long Citibank. And I stay long. Uh, but the valuations are no longer something you can say, hey, this is really attractive. So uh, if you're a trader, uh, I think you follow Guy on this one. And I think you pick these, you pick these up in a couple of weeks. I stay long because uh, I'm an investor.
0: I feel like Dan's got a snarky comment. So Dan.
5: No, you keep going to me last like this, Mel. You got the the surrounding the trade here. Everyone said everything that needs to be said here. You know, I'll just say this. I mean, I'll just add something here. The last two days, you know, yields have been kind of holding firm here. The 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, at one five eight, one five nine. 159, got as high as 162. And a lot of the major money centers sold off. I thought that was pretty interesting. And I'll just leave it at that, OK? <laughs> All right. Y- yes, Tim. <laughs>
3: Well, I mean, Mel, nobody puts Dan in a corner. So, I mean, I think you've <laughs> got you know, to work on that.
0: I just like the last word is should be, you know, something that you want. I agree. But you, there know, you go, okay,
3: last, last word, can
4: we get a, Can we make a clip? Can we make a clip of Melissa holding up Dan like in, the, you know, the very last scene of Dirty Dancing?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Let me see if you could put that together can't, really can't quick. Un- that would be fantastic. That's a big that. lift. Yeah, big lift.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, coin collect. I'm going to leave it at that. Coin collectibles. Coinbase getting into NFTs. A crypto company launching its own marketplace. We'll break down what it means for this red hot part of the market. And later, a prescription for profits. A one healthcare name that could soar thanks to a major event kicking off this week. We've got the details. When fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Coinbase shares under pressure today, even as the company announces a big push into NFTs. Kate Rooney's got the details. Hey, Kate. Hey, Melissa.
7: Coinbase is launching its own platform for NFTs. In a blog post today, the crypto company says Coinbase NFT, as they're calling it, will be a marketplace for minting, buying, and discovering NFTs. It also plans to add certain social features, and it talks about making the buying process easier. To start, Coinbase says it's supporting Ethereum-based standards. It'll add other blockchains down the road, but it's not live yet. They're starting here With a waiting list, NFTs are short for non-fungible tokens are essentially digital collectibles. They have really taken off this year. And the Coinbase announcement is the latest move by the company to differentiate in a pretty crowded crypto trading field. Competition is heating up lately with Robinhood, Square, SoFi and a lot of others. It also might be a way to diversify away from trading revenue. It also adds some competitive pressure to the biggest NFT marketplace out there open sea and there's a couple others that this does add some pressure for and Coinbase ending the day today almost 3% lower that came as bitcoin lost some steam as well and after coinbase disclosed some issues with transfers the platform still seeing issues with certain bank transfers withdrawals and trades today coinbase telling us they've identified the issue causing what they're saying are stuck transactions no additional comments from the company on what's causing that melissa
0: Kate, do we not think that the likes of Square or PayPal will go into NFTs also? I mean, that almost seems like a foregone conclusion.
7: Yeah, it's interesting. Coinbase is really known as a first mover in a lot of ways. They're sort of following here and catching up to a lot of the other platforms. But if you look at a company like Square, Jack Dorsey, is extremely bullish on bitcoin and that whole ecosystem you could see a world where they would move into that but it it seems like coinbase will test it out here but the scale of coinbase i'm sure is making a lot of these other smaller players uh
0: nervous today all right kate thanks kate rooney in san francisco dan nathan what do you think of this move
5: yeah, I think Kate nailed it. It really is coming after OpenSea. There's a tweet from Mario Gabriel, widely followed NFT Maven on the Twitter, um, that was talking about OpenSea, just said 500 million in projected revenue, 27.5 billion in gross merchandise value, three and a half million NFTs for sale, 300, um, you know, 330,000% growth in the NFT market and they probably have close to a $10 billion market cap. So you do all that math, it's a pretty easy thing. For Coinbase, if you think about how many of the wallets on Coinbase are also probably trading in other places in the NFT market, um, it, it is a logical extension for me
0: How should we think about the NFT market though because there, there are other players in there. I mean Tim, I know you follow Draftkings. Draftkings has an NFT market maybe this is, this is a, a space right now that will be very um, you know, fractionalized, so to speak I mean in terms of specialization of certain kinds of M- NFTs in certain marketplaces yeah.
3: I think they will. I think I think you'll see, especially as as you get into the different call entertainment and artistic genres that that I think are going to attract NFTs and are attracting NFTs. I think there will be different specialists, almost like market makers, possibly. Um, I I just think back to Coinbase, though, um, the market's not, you know, for for an almost a 90 percent correlation between crypto prices, Bitcoin and whatnot to Coinbase in the past. Um, it's just not keeping pace on the way back. I, I think it's, it's undervalued here relative to that. I think whether it's uh, Coinbase Lend or Coinbase NFT, by the way, they're, very, they're their names are, are not terribly unique or clever. But bottom line is, I do think that these are things that nobody has in their models anyway. So um, I also think that Coinbase is someone that actually embraces the regulatory environment and has worked pretty hard with the regulators. So if anything, I think they get a leg up the more this moves down the road with regulators. So I kind of like the story here, more than kind of like it. I think it's totally lagged the move in Bitcoin and other crypto prices.
0: Yeah, Karen, you noticed that lag yourself.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like it, too. I mean, I was thinking the other day about the NFT market, and I wish that uh, Sotheby's or Christie's were public as sort of a pure play, but neither are. Um, I think for Coinbase, it makes sense. Why not? Uh, Right. It seems like probably not a gigantic amount of capital up front and margins could be great. It makes sense to me. I think it's smart.
0: All right. Coming up, just what the doctor ordered. Herb Greenberg. You heard me right, Herb Greenberg. He's back in action. He's making a case for a stock. Why he thinks this healthcare-related name could give your portfolio a big old shot in the arm. But first, as we head out, a message from the CEO of Cabrera Capital Markets the CNBC celebrates Hispanic Heritage Month.
8: Growing up in Little Village, a Latino community on Chicago's southwest side, I learned many valuable lessons. A strong work ethic, family values, perseverance and grit, and a competitive spirit that still drives me today to win in business. Advice I would give CEOs is that Latino youth is one of the fastest growing segments of this country. It is a whole tidal wave, an economic tsunami that's taking place in our country.
2: I hope you're ready for it.
0: Welcome back. Do not miss CNBC's At Work Summit, returning tomorrow with a packed lineup of executives from WeWork, Dell, Netflix, and other voices. In, in the future of work, register now at cnbcevents.com/worksummit. Well, prescription for profits—that's what Herb Greenberg is calling this stock. As 63.3 million Americans enter the open enrollment period for Medicare this week, you heard that right. Herb is making the case for a stock. Joining us now with the name that is with the name is Herb Greenberg, senior editorial, uh, senior editor, I should say, of Empire Financial Research and a CNBC contributor. Herb, it's good to see you. You look well. We're glad to Melissa, it's great see you doing you. well. We're used to you being the contrarian, so this is a little hard to get used to, but you actually like this stock.
8: Yeah, I, look, I, I've mellowed in my older age a little bit, uh, but I think what really happened was it was out of outrage that I sort of stumbled on this company. And the outrage I had was over Medicare, which open enrollment starts later this week, I was going at it a little earlier, comparing drugs. You're supposed to do the drug plan every year. It's a hassle. Prices always go up. You ship plans. This time I looked and I go, my goodness, what just happened here? How did prices rise by hundreds of dollars? So I started chatting about it on social media, started hearing from some of my friends who said, why aren't you looking at this company, GoodRx? They're a good alternative for your drugs. I thought, hey, I looked at it. I thought about it. I noticed they'd gone public a while back never really thought about it. Then started digging around. And then I noticed that some guys I work with, Enrique Abeda and Gabe Marshank, two former hedge fund guys, they run the the Empire League Growth newsletter. They'd written about this thing in May. And they're really smart guys with somewhat of a short bias. So they're kind of wired the way I am. And they really like this. And they liked it. And I started going through the concept. And the concept was that it's more of a platform company. You know, it's like a priceline, like an Airbnb, like a like a like a spot like a Shopify. And it's got the so it, it, it sort of can be can go into that bucket as something where you basically can really save a lot of money. I've I've started to try it already. I I'm gonna save hundreds of dollars next year by using it. So I think it's pretty interesting. I think it has good potential. I would say at some point it even has potential. I can't see how this thing remains independent for its entire life.
2: Herb, it's amazing to see. It's great to have you back on. I think Doug Hirsch was on with Jim Cramer at the end of September. He talked about some of the relationships with pharmacies and Walmart, which i got to believe is important. But is this as easy as just a subscription growth story? Because the sub-growth has been ridiculous if you look at last quarter.
8: Although their sub-growth isn't really where the revenues are coming from. It's, it's more than not just being, you know, if you look at, they have a subscription growth of a subscription platform, but more of it is just people who download the app and then, you know, get a coupon, as I did today, and then go to the, go to the pharmacy, show them a coupon, and bingo, you save $70. Um, so I think it's, it's a mix of things. And remember, these guys make their money by being in cahoots with the PBMs, the pharmacy benefit managers, and they do that by sort of splitting some of the take with them. Uh, And they do it by basically, uh, you know, taking out, you know, they take margin out of distribution. So there's really a benefit here. Um, There's competition. I'm surprised there's not more. I should also say, Guy, I sort of stopped when I saw short interest at about 24 percent. I really tried to figure out what that was. I think much of that's tied to this whole, uh, you know, TAM, you know, the the bias, the bearish bias against anything with TAM and uh, and margins the way, you know, I, I rather just Tam. So I was looking at this, and and I can't find a huge negative. I'm sure somebody's going to hit me up on as you would say the Twitter with that pretty soon. Uh, but I think it's pretty
0: interesting. Twenty four percent short interest and in good fundamentals. I mean, Herbert it sounds it sounds like it. It sort of checks the boxes in this sort of investing age where meme stocks rule, but people are also looking for interesting stories. Did that cross your yeah, mind? Well, this is curious. Yeah,
8: well, well, no, it didn't cross my mind. And I want to say something else here. This is not some short term deal. You know, I I look at Enrique and Gabe and they see that they see this as a potentially hundred dollar stock at some point. But they're not talking about tomorrow. They're not talking about next quarter. This is a longer term play. But I think, look, you guys sitting there, you're not 65 years old. You're not on Medicare. And that's they say that's 30 percent of their customers. And so you're not playing it the same way. There's also an arrogance on Wall Street. And the arrogance on Wall Street is who's going to do this just to save a few dollars? It's not really. This is much bigger than that. And it's not just Medicare. It's people with group plans that find they can find something cheaper. You know, I find it odd that I'm sitting here getting worked up about a long. uh, (laughs) But I also find that there are a lot of ideas out there that the street Mm -hmm. sometimes just scoffs at. But actually, we've seen they turn out to be pretty decent businesses. And this one seems to be pretty decent based on what I've seen so far and what my colleagues have done a lot of work on and also seen.
0: It's going to take a little getting used to hearing you talk positively about a stock, Herb, but we like it. We do like it. So we hope to see you again.
8: I'll see you later, Mel.
0: Herb Greenberg. I mentioned meme stocks, not to denigrate Herb's pitch on GoodRx, but to just say that maybe certain dynamics are lining up with this trade. I mean, if you like the story already. A high short interest and a potential short squeeze isn't anything to to laugh at necessarily, Tim.
3: No, and by the way, we we were just reunited with Herb and it feels so good. Um, (laughs) So I I think you've got a twenty-four here. Well, I I had to. I had to. Um, 24 percent short interest, I, I think, is actually a catalyst. If anything, you know, that competitive landscape means this is a company that could be a takeout play. And there are certainly some obvious big boys and girls that, that could be that player. Um, you look at their second quarter numbers, you know, up 43%. They've got a platform that continues to scale. Um, so you know, I, I fall on the side to say this is actually a company that is showing more growth and is, is yeah complementary to some of the major players and could actually be someone that, that is in the line of, of an acquisition.
0: Everybody wants to save money on prescription drugs which, whose prices are going up and up and up, Karen. So um, I'm wondering what you think of this one.
4: I think it's interesting. I mean, like you, I'm sort of, you know, shocked and surprised to hear her chatty in a great mood and wanting, you know, to talk about a long. That's interesting to me. I like the idea of it. I did notice uh, I think Cigna is a customer. I wonder if they get other big customers like that. That would certainly be a good catalyst as well, if that is true. So I kind of like it.
0: Well, um, after hours, the stock is up at 4%. We'll keep tracking the move here. Coming up, Tesla driving higher today, and that has options traders buckling in. More on that trade next and later. A recipe for success Shake Shack dropping a new truffle burger today. Mmm, delicious details coming your way. Fast Money's talking fast food. We come right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Tesla speeding higher. The EV maker selling over 56,000 cars in China last month. That's a new record for the company. And Tesla's move has options traders plugging in. Mike Co joins us with the action. Hey, Mike.
9: Hi there. So Tesla was the most active single stock option if we're looking at it in terms of contracts traded, beating out Apple by about 400,000 contracts, trading about 1.36 million contracts. In total, of course, if we factor in the share prices of these companies, Tesla is by far and away the most active and has been quite consistently for uh, some time now. What we are seeing was a lot of short dated activity on that news this week. The most active options were the 810 and 820 strike calls. Buyers of those options are obviously betting that the rally could continue. But of course, the company is also going to be reporting earnings next week. And right now, the options market is implying a move of about 7.7 percent by a week from Friday after they report. That's in line with the last eight quarter average, but the most active options that expire next week are actually the 750 strike puts. We saw over 40,000 of those trading for about $16 a contract. Buyers of those puts might be expressing a little bit of reservation that earnings could lead to some pullback in the share price.
0: Uh, you know, we talked about JP Morgan and the bank setup in terms of the run into the earnings print, and here we are with Tesla guy, and I'm wondering what you think the setup is here.
2: I, th- I think the setup is great, and I'm probably in the minority here, but I think Tesla's done everything it had to do on the downside over the last few months. Now it continues to accelerate through 800. I've said for a while I'll stand by it. I think it's going to print that $900 price that we saw earlier this year, a new all-time high into earnings. You know, I'm sure there's a fast fire coming. I mentioned that because... It's sort of throwback Fast Money Night with Herb, uh, but I'll stand by that $900. <laughs> We're
0: going to do pops and drops next, too, by the way. Uh, Mike, thanks for that. For more options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, Shake Shack getting fancy with its latest product launch with the company just revealed that's got the traders licking their chops. That and final trades are next. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shake Shack is firing up a limited edition black truffle burger. It comes with Gruyere cheese, black truffle sauce, and crispy shallots. The price starts at $8.79. Got used to work at Shake Shack, right?
2: Yeah. Are they paying you that $8.79? Truffles are one of those things that everybody says they love, but nobody does. And don't at me on Twitter. It's the same thing with caviar and lobster and all that. Stick to your knitting, Shake Shack. That's why your stock is going from $130 to $75.
0: I do McRib over Truffle Burger, personally, but, you know, that's me. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Nike needs to make truffle
3: sneakers, but if they did, people would buy them. I think the demand around their innovation, they are hip with the kids. Maybe truffle so.
0: (laughs) Karen.
4: Yeah, I think Target's been oversold, and I think it'll be a place to go for Christmas if other places are out of stuff. Target.
0: Dan, I know you're going to try that burger. I know it.
5: Uh, I'm all over it. If I hadn't had three burgers already this week, I would have had it for lunch today. Um, <laughs> wow. I want semi. If you have a post-earnings dip, I'd be a buyer there.
0: Guy.
2: Mix a salad and slum burger is greater than truffle burger.
0: <laughs> Thanks for watching. Fancy back here tomorrow at 5 Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.